All rise. The Honorables, the presiding judge and judges of the Court of Appeals of the State of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Court of Appeals is now in session. God save this state and this honorable court. Be seated. Good afternoon and welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. I'm Judge Valerie Zachary. To my right is Judge Fred Gore. To my left is Judge Darren, Darren Jackson. Assisting us today are our, uh, is our clerk of court, uh, Jean Soar, and Officer Richard Remillard. On the calendar this afternoon, we have BS and HS LLC, PPS Management Inc., and Hardip S. Ruprow versus, you know, I know, I'm sure I'm butchering these names. Michael, now Karan Inc., Parish Patel, Gorhandi, Hi D. Patel, and Usha Patel. Was that too terrible? Thank you. You're, you're, being, you're, being, <laughs> you're, you're being very generous. Uh, of course, you, each of you will have 30 minutes for your argument. Have you reserved your rebuttal time? I've not, but I'd like to reserve five minutes. Okay. Mr. Soar takes care of that for us now. You may approach elected. May it please the court. Um, and Judge Zachary, I'm not sure as, as deep into this as I am that I've still got all the names pronounced correctly, <laughs> my best as well. Um, but my name is Lamar Armstrong III uh, from the Johnson County Bar here on behalf of the uh, plaintiff appellants. And uh, I think the undisputed fact from which a lot of the legal arguments that you'll hear today, really the linchpin of it is that Paresh Patel, one of the defendants, uh, was the true contracting party in this commercial real estate transaction. Uh, and that Niall Karan, again, I'm not completely sure I'm pronouncing that right, but that's what I'm gonna go with, uh, was just a vehicle to provide funding and support for Paresh Patel. Niall Karan uh, and Paresh's uncle, Gordon Bai Patel, and his wife, Paresh's aunt, uh, Usha Patel, uh, essentially uh, showed up at the closing uh, that there was lots of testimony and evidence received about on behalf of Niall Karan uh, to support their nephew, Paresh Patel, and to provide uh, some funding and support for him so that he's able to close on the deal because, and all of this is undisputed testimony, uh, because he wasn't able to come up with enough money on his own to close the transaction, so they came along. Um, they obtained money from uh, Mr. Gordon Bay's bank, and they used that money and loan it, lent it to Paresh Patel so that he had the money to close on the transaction. Uh, now, what you'll not hear and what's not in the record is a thorough, well-put-together written contract. Um, and I think that uh, the 
defense in closing argument at trial, as reflected in the transcript, said that, well, if there is a contract, it's an oral contract. Um, but the bottom line question is, why did Nayal Karan receive the property? Why did it receive title to the property, as opposed to Paresh Patel or anybody else? And that is the fundamental question of fact. Um, did they do something, did, did Nayal Karan, for example, do something to earn it? Or was it simply given to it without earning it? In other words, was it given as a bargain for exchange under a contract? Or was it received outside of a contract? Hopefully this illustration isn't too silly, but when I think about how do I encapsulate the situation, I think about my six-year-old daughter. She comes around the corner with a lollipop in her mouth, and as her dad, the first question I ask of her is, how do you have that? Where'd that come from? Did you do something to earn it? Uh, did you clean up your room? And mom says you, you get a lollipop because you earned it. Uh, or was it something that you just got, you know, because for no real reason at all? She didn't earn it. It was just teacher was having a good day or something. Counsel, there, is, there is some explanation. On, on that point. Yes, sir. Um, being a parent myself, I like analogies. You know, uh, we also would then, as the parent, want to make sure we do our due diligence. And so in looking in the record, um, either uh, the lack thereof or finding it, where, where can we find some of that information within the record to build uh, or to satisfy that, that linchpin question? Because uh, when, when you look back through the record, uh, uh, it's, it's, um, it's not as boastful as one would want to be able to try to build the building blocks uh, to answer some of these questions. So wh where in the record would you point to that linchpin uh, question to help get some foundation to that? Your Honor, I would point to the, our factual summary and our main brief uh, pages starting really with page seven, round seven, and going through page eleven or twelve, and and that cites to the record and, and when uh, those areas and those facts, but it's got the point is it's got to be something. It's got to be a contract or it's got to be unjust enrichment. There is no explanation besides those two things. And when I say contract, I mean either some sort of contract directly between Niall Karan and my clients, which we pled alternatively. We pled the implied contract theory. But I think the easier and most obvious answer is that Niall Karan is a contractual successor and assign, or a sign. Uh, we went through in great detail how, uh, and that's where you'll see some of those facts, um, how Vinayakshi, again, if I'm pronouncing that right, was dissolved. Paresh Patel used that, dissolved it, and essentially continued to operate the same business through Nyalkaran. And there's lots of facts that suggest that it's the exact same business, the exact same operation, uh, used the exact same way, at the exact same location, down to the exact same telephone number. And so the easy, I think, and correct answer legally is that Nyalkaran is a successor or a sign to Vinayakchi. 
And I think that fits the shoe of what was what they were trying to accomplish that day, which is, um, you know, it was always going to be Paresh's company, his operation. He couldn't make it happen on his own. Uh, and so therefore, Niall Karan, through his uncle and aunt, stepped in uh, Vinayakshi's shoes and essentially helped the deal cross the finish line. Well, well I have a couple questions. Yes, ma'am. Who, who are the officers of uh, Niall Karan? Niall Karan, um, I think that the Secretary of State filings are one of the exhibits in the record. I think that Paresh Patel was the uh, only recognized officer and registered agent of both Vinayakchi and um, Niall Karan. But if but, I'm wrong about that, that would be in that exhibit. But as a registered agent and officer of the corporation? Not necessarily in of itself, and I don't remember there's a specific exhibit, Your Honor, that I can pull, but it, it, it is the Secretary of State filing. It may have been the latest annual report, so if, they, if there's no officers listed on that or the one for Vinayakchi, there's not. There is no separate operating agreement that spells that out. Mm -hmm. um, so if there's whether, – whether Paresh Patel is listed as an officer of both corporations or not, the undisputed testimony is that, in fact, that's what he was. Is it significant if he were the registered agent of both corporations or both companies? I think that that is one fact among others that shows that it was the same operation, just operating under a new name. But aren't there companies that that's what they do for a business, is act as registered agent for, for uh, different companies? Sure, there are. Uh, but I don't think that, I think that the registered agent and registered office in this case were the actual company locations and, and um, Paresh Patel for both. Okay. So I don't think it is a separate company. And, but again, that's exhibit somewhere 18, 19, 20 uh, in the record, okay. a trial exhibit somewhere in there. Uh, did Paresh Patel represent that Niall Karan was his company and that he was the new owner? Yes. Uh, so I tried to do my best because I realized that the facts and the evidence are a little bit confusing. Uh, but I tried to do my best in our main brief to lay that out. Uh, his testimony and his uncle Gordon Bayes' testimony is both that, uh, that it was his and the intention was for it to remain his. Um, uh, so that he was going to use and, in fact, did use Niall Karan uh, to continue the same operation at the same place for the same franchise. So I think he, he confirmed all of that in his testimony. So um, anyway, it's got to be a contract or not a contract. It, it, there, I don't think there is a third option. It's got to be one or the other. That's the universe of options. And so if it's, um, if it's not, uh, for whatever reason, a contractual successor or sign, then there's got to be some motivation, some reason why Niall Karan received title to the property. It didn't just happen by magic out of nowhere. And in fact, the testimony was that everybody showed up at closing and it was several hour deal where Again, Niall Karan, Gordon Bai, Paresh Patel, and others all came together to the same closing to try to get the same deal struck. And so um, if it's not a successor or a sign situation, which again, I think is the most logical one, the one that fits the best, then it's an implied contract where Niall Karan is acting, but, but acting pursuant to some sort of contract, albeit not one that was written out and spelled out cleanly and concisely for us here after the fact. Um, and then also, but, but all of that deals with the issue of indemnity. 
meaning um, in, you know, there is a duty of the tenants under the uh, uh, lease and option uh, that expired, I think, in May of 2014. But the duty is a continuing one. I don't think there's been any argument to the contrary that the tenants um, were to indemnify and hold harmless the landlord from any and all losses, harms. It's very broadly worded. It's, uh, I think, page, page quoted, the indemnity clause quoted in page seven of our main brief. Um, but, but if, um, and so if there is indemnity, then there is indemnity to the successors. Uh, the successors carry that same indemnity obligation, and that would be Nyalkaron. And I understand, I'm sure we'll hear from Ms. Reese that, that the, the other, the, sort of the contrary point of view is, well, um, Nyalkaron is an independent contracting party. Nyalkaron struck up its own deal at closing with my clients, had nothing to do with Paresh Patel or his old company, Vinayakji, or whatever. And, um, and I would admit that on the face of things, that might make some sense if all you had to go by is the deed, the settlement statement. Um, but the problem with that theory is that, and it's a theory, it's not a fact, it's a theory. Uh, the theory is arm's length bargain for transaction between Nyalkaron and my clients. But that theory doesn't have any factual support to back it up. And in fact, um, the defendants again testified the exact opposite of that. Uh, it's not, Nyalkaron isn't its own independent contracting party that, that just, you know, without any context showed up and decided to close on a separate transaction. They were there, Nyalkaron and his, his uncle were there simply to support Paresh Patel in closing on the transaction. So, so counsel, is, is there anywhere in the record that establishes the consideration um, for that interaction between uh, the Patels and Nyalkaron to establish a, a factual basis for that implied, uh, in fact, contract? What, what, what record? citation or testimony provides where there was consideration? The word consideration was never used, and that's why I think the successor and assigned theory well, fits better. Well, even, even if it wasn't used, what facts mm -hmm. or what action uh, between those two entities gets us to that legal, you know, uh, theory? Between Nyalkaran and, and what, which other entity? And basically the, the plaintiffs. The plaintiffs, yeah. So um, I think the answer to that is that the purchase money had to come from somewhere. And so the idea is, okay, we, Nyalkaran, will step into the, the true contracting party's shoes, provide the consideration in exchange, and we'll do that in exchange for agreeing to indemnify and hold harmless uh, Paresh Patel and Vinayakji. And so I think that that is the consideration, but it wasn't explicitly set out in those terms. And, and so there's not anywhere in the record where that was really flushed out. Because I don't think the trial, did the trial, the trial court really didn't buy that argument, I don't think, too much, did it? Well, the, the judgment wasn't broken out into implied contract and express contract. There was issue one of the judgment was, I just think, contract. Um, and so that, that issue was answered accordingly. Um, but just to point out that 
Nialcaran didn't have to provide any. In fact, it, it didn't exist yet, so it couldn't have provided any consideration to become a successor or a sign. It's just a, as a matter of undisputed fact, that's what happened. Um, so I, again, I think that's why that's probably um, an easier theory to follow based upon the evidence of record. Well, on that issue, is there, do you cite to a case that would give us an example or give us some breadcrumbs to kind of go down that path on that argument to support your, your argument on that? No, we, we did footnote uh, the, the blacks' definitions for successor and assign, but even by those definitions, and I'm sure there's, there's it's hard to pinpoint on a factual basis what is a successor, what is not, what is an assign and what is not, because it literally is just based upon the facts of record. Um, and that could be anything. And so I, I will tell the court, I did not find a case that had substantially similar facts to this where the court either took it up and said there was or was not uh, successor liability. There are, and, and we may hear some about this, there, are, there is a line of case law that deals with um, common law corporate successor liability. And that's where there is no contractual right or contractual duty to indemnify in place. It's, it's just, um, you know, from a common law perspective, a long time ago, our courts came up with this rule essentially to protect um, new purchasers of assets from an old corporation, but at the same time to protect creditors of the old corporation, just so to strike that balance. But here, I don't think we even need to go there, and in fact shouldn't go there, because we've got a contract in place saying indemnity is a matter of contract. You, tenant your successors, your assigns, have a duty to indemnify and hold harmless the landlords, my clients. But, but Nalcaron didn't buy the assets of the old company. That's right. So, and I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, well, my question is, so then could it be a successor a, or a sign of a company that was defunct months um, earlier? I think Nyakaran can certainly be a successor of a, another company, regardless of whether the Secretary of State uh, annual filing was done before Nyakaran was set up. Well, I mean, you're saying, you're saying regardless of whether the Secretary of State's annual filing was done, was it, I mean, wasn't the company, in fact, administratively dissolved? Vinayakshi was administratively dissolved, dissolved for failure to file an annual report, I think, two months or so before, or maybe even been one month, it's in our brief, before uh, Niall Karan was formed. So is it your contention that, 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 that Vinayachi, <laughs> I'm trying hard to just say these things for Yes, ma'am. That Vinayachi was, uh, was not defunct, that it was in fact, you know, still a, an active um, company at the time that, that Niall Karan entered into the contract? The, so the first answer to that, I think, is um, the law on that is, you know, you may be in trouble with the Secretary of State if you don't timely file your, your, you know, your annual filings, but that doesn't mean you can't be legally sued or sue, and there's some, there's some statutes that deal with that in the LLC Act um, and in Chapter 55 as well. Well, uh, for, in order to, you know, for, for closing down your, your business, am I correct, or is that, is that correct? So, yes, ma'am. So, administrative dissolution doesn't necessarily mean that the business is, its affairs are formally wound up and dissolved as we would use those terms. It just right. means that the Secretary of State said you've not done what by statute you're supposed to do and therefore you're not supposed to, you know, you need to come into compliance. But that's more of a, that's more of a, um, 
a compliance with um, sort of the fee statute issue, not necessarily dealing with whether or not, because it happens all the time, Your Honor, where you have a, a company that's, um, or someone behind a company in this situation that's decided it's not going to move forward with one company, it's going to open up another. So, it, you know, they could even file articles of dissolution, um, you know, one day and then open up uh, a new corporation the next day. And I think the law is clear that you can do that, but that's not going to be a gotcha, if you will, to successor corporation liability, whether it's by contract or under the common law standard. I certainly didn't see any uh, case law that would suggest that. And, and you think about it, it makes sense because, again, the law of successor corporate liability is in place in part to protect genuine creditors um, from actions to avoid valid judgments uh, or, or valid uh, debts. So um, I think that um, anyway, but, but I'll wrap that up and then take questions on if there's any other uh, parts that, that your honors have. But bottom line is, is that it's got to be something I recognize that the court has questions about. Well, what is it? Is it contract? Is it, is it you know, successor corporation liability? Is it unjust enrichment? And the thing that I would say is it's got, it's got to be one of them. There is no option D. Either they received the property and they did something to earn it, or they didn't. And if they didn't, it's uh, unjust enrichment. Uh, if they did, um, then that just begs the question of what should be done about it. And again, I think that means that there is a successor corporation liability here. And I would just underscore that there was nothing nothing done to sort of contradict our evidence that there was a, that Niall Karam was a successor or a sign of Vinayakshi. And we put on evidence, again, like I said, everything from same location, same address, same phone number, same operator, same business, same operation. We did all that. And then when Paresh Patel and, and his uncle took the stand, they did, all they did was to confirm that. Yeah, it, it, this deal was supposed to be uh, for the benefit of Paresh. Yes, um, Nyakaran did step in, provide the funds. Yes, we, we obtained title to the property, but only as lender for Paresh Patel and to do that uh, based upon what we had to do to get the money from our bank to close. So even by their testimony, they did nothing but confirm the fact that one is a successor of another. Um, if there's no more questions about that, I'll move on to the next issue. Does any of your honors have any other questions about that? I, mean, I have a question about attorney's fees. Is yes. that where you're heading? Yes. Uh, go ahead. Well, uh, the question I have is whether or not you concede that, that Paresh Patel and, and Viniachi um, are subject to the imposition of attorney's fees under the lease. They are, and, and, and frankly, I'm not sure that, that in the briefing that the appellees even contested that. I think that you look at the attorney's fees clause and um, they are they are liable based upon the result, the unchallenged result from the other issues in the judgment. So um, I don't think there's any dispute, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think there's any dispute that Paresh Patel and Vinayachi are subject to that attorney's fees provision. I think the only argument we got was on, beh on behalf of Niall Karan. Well, that's what, that was my next question. Yes, what about Niall Karan and the rest of the... the uh... So I think, and if you look, it's on my brief, page seven, but the, the attorney's fees provision is part of the same indemnity provision. So it's all one and the same. It basically says you are to indemnify as to 
anything and everything under the sun, including attorney's fees and costs. And so I think that if Nyalkaran is a successor then or assigned, then they, again, under that contractual indemnity, have a duty to indemnify on attorney's fees as well. So, counsel, let's, assuming arguendo, which sometimes I teeter back and forth whether we use that, that language, but uh, would it not then still be, even if it was contractually agreed to within the full discretion of the trial court in making that determination? I don't, and, and I, so, I, so get me to where, yes, sir. in light of what you've argued, that they were helping a family member out, they were trying to do the right thing, make sure the deal went through, get me to the trial court abusing its discretion. I think the abuse of discretion is, um, and really, I'm not sure that this part is abuse of discretion. I think when you read a statute um, like 6-21.6 and you're applying the words of the statute, I'm not, that may be a, a de novo issue. It may not be abuse of discretion. I'm not sure. But regardless of what it is, I think if you read the, this statute to essentially leave up to the trial court's discretion whether or not to tax attorney's fees, I think that that plainly cuts against the intent of the legislature because why pass a statute that says, on the one hand, enforce contracts between business people, but on the other hand, no, it's, it's up to you whether or not you want to enforce it. I see your argument, but I guess uh, is that uh, depriving our courts of equity and being able to sit and evaluate the facts? I don't think so, Your Honor, because I don't think it's an, an issue of equity, all due respect. I think it's an, an issue of statutory interpretation and application. So but I think that's a, But if the statute gives the judge the discretionary view, so how is that counter to not interpreting it appropriately if the judge gives a basis, provides a finding of fact for why that discretion was then executed? I guess then we're, if, if you're in a situation where you're saying, hey, trial judge had the discretion, and on the record judge said, hey, I don't think I have the discretion, then I think we're in a whole different ballgame because our case law is very succinctly you got to send it back for the judge to exercise that discretion. But if we have a statute that, you know, specifically provides the trial judge to use that discretion, there's findings back to say, in light of what I've seen, I'm using my discretion. Get me to how that is not how the, the statute was meant to be executed. Because, Your Honor, I think the discretion that the statute gives trial judges is not to whether to tax enforce a contractual provision but the level of attorney's fees. It reminds me of, um, this isn't Rule 11, but Rule 11 analysis under case law is the first threshold is, am I going to levy sanctions and then if so, and attorney's fees, and if so, what's the level of attorney's fees, and that's a two-step inquiry. I think the same thing is true here. You've got a legal decision where the statute says if there's this contract that qualifies under the definition of the statute. It's a business deal. Um, it's a bilateral uh, attorney's fees clause, and it's got a few things in it. I don't think there's any question that it meets all that. Uh, then it's enforceable, but then it's up to the discretion of the trial judge to determine at what level it's enforceable, the level of attorney's fees, which is reasonable. So assuming that findings of facts are not there or those findings are, are but there is some level of discretion given to judge would would that not be remand 
for the judge to add those findings of fact or the, the, the reason for why they were not awarded? Yeah, I think that, Your Honor, I think under Rule 52, findings should have been provided for all the issues anyway. And I think it's another problem as to why we've got some question and confusion about exactly what issue accomplishes what. Um, sitting non-jury, if you read Rule, I think it's 52A, there's supposed to be findings of fact in a, in a, uh, in a bench trial judgment. You're, you're running into your yes, time, yes, your rebuttal time. Um, any other questions for us, sit down? Any other questions? Thank you very much. Good afternoon. May it please the court. I'm Mary McCullers Reese for the Appellees. In essence, I have to get my glasses so I can see you and my, my papers. I, 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 I feel your pain. <laughs> You gotta go thinner rim, Council. <laughs> In essence, this court is about a real estate closing between two experienced businessmen represented by Council who worked out a deal at the closing table. The deal allowed Hardip Rupri to pay off more than a million dollars in loans and walk away with $95,000 in cash and a note. In exchange, Gordon Patel's company, Niall Caron, bought a hotel. Now Mr. Rupri is asking the courts to change or reform the terms of the deal that they struck. Trial court held that there was no contract implied in fact, no liability as a successor, quantum merit was not warranted under the facts, and that each of the parties should pay their own attorney's fees. And we respectfully ask this court to affirm. Actually, getting into this, I think it is much simpler to discuss these facts when you aren't trying to shoehorn theories of law onto the facts that don't really accommodate them. So their first theory is that Gordon Padel and Niall Karan should be held to the terms of the 2012 lease and option that Paresh Patel signed. They argue this even though Niall Karan didn't exist at any time that the lease and option were in effect. Vinakshi dissolved in March, March 2014 the lease and option dissolved in May 2014. Niall Karan came into being in June 2014, and this whole deal came down, this closing, in May 2015. They, and they argue it, too, even though Hardip Rupri himself said that he understood that Gordon's company was not bound by the documents that Paresh signed. On, 88, on page 88 of the transcript, counsel asked him, Mr. Rupri, did you ever have any written agreement with Niall Karan prior to closing? And he answers no. And then even more to the point, counsel follows up, so you're not here trying to hold, today try, to try to hold them to anything from the triple net lease or the option to purchase, are you? And Mr. Rupri answers not for those. So it's clear that he understood that the agreement that emerged at the clothing table with Gordon was a whole different animal, as counsel called it, from the lease he'd entered into with Paresh and Vinacci two years prior. So in sum, your argument is, please correct me if I'm wrong, is it your argument then that Nalcron couldn't succeed to a contract that had already expired? I think they didn't succeed to a contract that had already expired. Uh, the trial court had that before her to determine. Contract had already expired. Nalcron comes into being and then even more than that, I think, Judge Zachary, is that it's a, almost a year later, they negotiate this deal, you know, man to man, eye to eye, this deal at the closing table. And I think that's what has to govern this. 
the trial court was entitled to infer, based on their testimony, that the parties understood that Venacci and Nialcron were distinct entities and that Nialcron was entering into the fray, entering into this transaction on its own terms, terms negotiated through a marathon six-hour closing, rather than merely stepping into the shoes of Venacci. And that's what the trial court did. She recognized the liability for the 2012 contract on Paresh and Venacci, but not on Gordon and Nialcron. And that portion of the judgment has not been cross-appealed. In their next attempt to shift the debts to Gordon's company, the appellants argue that there was an implied contract, um, evidenced by their conduct, for Nialcron to pay the outstanding franchise fees that accrued prior to closing. Well, there were three contemporaneously signed documents from the closing that came into evidence, the settlement statement, the deed, and the promissory note. Not one of those documents suggests that Gordon was expected to pay the outstanding franchise fees above and beyond the negotiated purchase price. After the fact, there was also an email from the closing attorney. More evidence, more competent evidence for the trial court to have considered. Paresh had emailed her to ask what to do about Hardip's non-payment of the franchise fees. And she told him the franchise fees weren't part of the closing and were out of her realm. We're not at trial, of course, so I'm not asking your honors to find those facts, but that is the competent evidence and testimony that the trial court had before it to credit or discredit in whole or in part in drawing inferences. And based on that ample competent evidence, it was reasonable for her to find no agreement as to the attorney's fees, implied or otherwise. It was also reasonable for her to leave the franchise fees essentially where they lay prior to closing, which is to say that Hardy Pry was liable to days in, and Paresh Patel and Venacci had to indemnify him. And that's what she did. Their third theory of recovering is quantum merit, a remedy that this court reviews for abuse of discretion. And the basis for quantum merit is unjust enrichment, resulting from a provision of goods or services not contemplated by an agreement. In the present case, there were not the usual type of services that you would contemplate in quantum merit. There was no improvement to a lot of land or anything like that. This is very different from what most of those cases uh, bring out. In addition, the parties did have an agreement of some sort as to the terms of sale, one that just didn't contemplate shifting responsibility for the franchise fees to Gordon Patel. Without doubt, when he sat down to negotiate that day, even after the Paresh left the room and Gordon became his, the person he was negotiating with, Hardy Pry was aware of his debt for the franchise fees. He knew those were due and owing. Still, the evidence showed and the court can infer that they instead engaged in bottom-line oriented negotiations, exactly what you think about of negotiations for a sale. They're walking in from a, you know, across a gap of money. Basically, you give me this, I'll give you that. Where Gordon offered what cash and debt he could cobble together at the table, and Hardy Pry accepted that amount to, as he said, get the closing done. They both wanted the closing done. Hardip testified on page 61 of the transcript that he knew he didn't have to offer any of the same terms to Niall Karan that he had originally offered to Paresh and Benakji. Still, it shouldn't be surprising that in the end of the deal, some of the terms remained 
terms that Mr. Rubai had previously found acceptable. So, Counsel, uh, um, hearing the assertions um, and the references back to testimony and to the transcript, what is your stance on how thorough the judgment or slash order makes findings of fact sufficient to get us to the conclusions of law to carry the burden that the trial court has in establishing what was testified to? Because I'm, I'm hearing your argument, mm -hmm. following your argument, but we're having to go back to the testimony. We're having to go back to the record. Discuss how this order or judgment substantiates what's in the record. Your Honor, certainly under Rule 52, more findings would have been better. More okay. findings would have been helpful and probably would have been the better practice. Okay. The trial court wasn't required to make evidentiary findings, though, as to each and every niche, you know, bit of this evidence. Well, and there was a lot. Well, what is had. this court to do whenever an order or judgment isn't sufficient to support that? Well, if the court determined it were insufficient, remand, remand only. But I would contend that as far as making ultimate findings of fact, I think her, her this sort of um, verdict sheet style order that they entered, with everyone on board, basically, and that was how it was submitted to her. Um, that is sufficient to answer the ultimate questions. The um, it's the ultimate questions of fact, which is basically no agreement implied in fact to change those fees, uh, no successorship, no quantum merit, which is a different standard that I haven't. But that's that's not that's more of an illegal remedy. Um, and then you get to no attorneys' fees, and I'll. I'm going there too. So. <laughs> does that answer your question? Yeah. Yes, it does. Um, how do you respond to the plaintiff's argument that Dow Quran was a mere continuation of uh, Vinayachi? There was a. Nile Quran was not a mere continuation. First, as we talked about, there's the definite break in time. Um, and then you have different people. It's just straight up different people. Yes, they allowed Paresh to be the manager of the hotel under both circumstances. But a different entity with different funding um, entered into this and negotiated a deal and provided the money, which is no insignificant thing in this deal. So I'd say th this is a negotiation for cash, for money, like any other negotiation. Does and it make a difference if, if uh, Presh Patel went around and told everybody that it was his hotel? I mean, he might, if he said that, the trial court didn't. The trial court was entitled to harmonize that and understood what it was. She viewed the parties, and she could certainly make you know, ascertain whether or not that was truth or whether that was simply something he said. And that was for the trial court to determine. And apparently, she determined it in the opposite. Throughout their brief. As to each of their three, I think I missed an argument here. I think I got past quantum merit. Um, their third argument for recovery, quantum merit. The, the basis for that is unjust enrichment. I did talk about quantum merit. I got ahead of myself. As to their, the case law that they cite in their brief, um, they cite 
cases as to each of the three legal theories, but none of these cases, and not one of them, does this court reverse or overrule the trial court to impose one of these remedies that the appellants have alleged, not one of them. Um, in short, these cases stand for the existence of these remedies and how you might arrive at them or how you might review them if the trial court did find them, but they don't mean that the trial court had to shoehorn them onto these facts. And that's the posture we're in. They're not asking you to affirm the trial court's finding of one of these remedies. They're asking you to reverse the trial court, who was the finder of fact, to impose a remedy that she didn't find and that she didn't include existing. And there's just no precedent cited for that here. And this shouldn't be the first time. Their final argument as to attorney's fees. Um, the trial court didn't tax attorney's fees as to Alcoran, as, which is as it should be, because Nialcaron wasn't a party to the lease and option, and that was the basis pled for attorney's fees. As to Paresh, it's a little bit more, a little bit more texture to that. The trial court had the discretionary authority to award attorney's fees because he did sign the 2012 lease and option. But I would suggest submit the trial, she, she wasn't required to do so. Without express, you know, and the question council mentioned, why would there be such a statute? Why would the legislature draft such a statute, you know, if it was just a discretion? Well, without express uh, statutory authority, attorney's fees aren't generally recoverable. So there has to be a statute in the context of a business contract for, for them to even be allowed, for them even to be, you know, trial court to have the authority to grant them. The authority cited here, 20, GS 6-21.6, says that the court may award reasonable attorney's fees in accordance with the terms of business contract. The plain words of the statute are permissive, not mandatory. The legislature certainly has used shall in any number of statutes to denote a mandatory situation, and this isn't one of them. In fact, the re reading that they're asking for is what you'd have if the statute said shall award attorney's fees, which is to say that you have a mandatory award with the trial court having complete discretion based on the fast factors listed in the um, statute as the amount. And there's no indication and no argument in their brief that the trial court misapprehended her dis discretion to award fees. In fact, she did award fees in conjunction with the promissory note, which was pursuant to a different statute, 6-21.2, and that one does use the word shall. And again, as to attorney's fees, the cases that they have cited, and none of them, does this court reverse the trial court for discretionarily finding it, finding no need for attorney's fees? And there are a lot of factors listed. At most, I would contend, if the, if, you know, if the order is lacking in factor findings as to those factors, that would be a matter for a man as to the attorney's fees for the trial court to explain what she did and find, make findings to, as to why. So we'd respectfully ask the court not to reverse. Yes, sir. I'd like to ask you a question on that. And I know you have not appealed, you have not appealed the entry no, of sir. attorney's fees against your client. Mm -hmm. um, but we do have to consider the, the, the plaintiff's uh, appeal. Can you point me in the record to where in the lease it has a reciprocal attorney's fees provision? Um, I see where the one cited in the brief, but it, it seems to read more one-sided than what we, we used to see things before the reciprocal provision was added to the statute. 
And Your Honor, forgive me. I'm having to look. Your Honor. I think what Your Honor is pointing out is that when you look at the indemnity clause, it requires that the tenant shall indemnify, defend, and save hardless landlord rather than a reciprocal. Are there other questions from the court? Do you have any questions? No, we don't. If not, we respectfully ask that this court, as to the issues that have been appealed, affirm the trial court. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, I'll go first, uh, Judge Jackson, to your question. Um, page 7 of our brief, again, quotes where it is in the record, the indemnity provision. The last sentence, most of that clause says, here's all the things that tenant will indemnify landlord for. And then the last sentence says, landlord will similarly indemnify tenant, so on and so forth. So I think it's bilateral because it's it's... It doesn't say exactly the same words, but it says landlord will similarly indemnify tenant for the same things that that preceded that sentence. Um, so that's why we would contend it's bilateral. Uh, heard a lot of argument about, well, first I'll go straight to this, this issue of uh, the lease and option dissolving. Again, you can look at our uh, amended complaint in the record and not to mention the judgment. Uh, we never sought to... We never sued Nyalkaran for breach of that, breach of the, the, the lease or the option that expired in May 2014. Didn't make a claim for that, so that's a non-issue. The only issue is whether there is successor liability so that you can indemnify. Um, I heard lots of uh, descriptions about what they were seeking to change the terms of the deal, lots of negotiations, but no explanation of what they contend the terms of any deal actually were. What were the negotiations? Again, it sounds good, but without context, but then when you ask the defendants, what was the deal? What were the negotiations? And all they did was, was put to sleep in the idea that this was an independent bargain for transaction with Nyalkaran. Um, they had every opportunity uh, to, to testify, yep, Nyalkaran, Gordon By, this is my contract, this is my deal and they 100% all the time did the opposite of that. Um, they never wavered in their insistence that they were not a party to the deal. They were simply there to support Paresh Patel as his lender, as his uncle. Um, 
the, the promissory note, since that was brought up, I'll mention that uh, briefly. Um, if, if, if you can look at it later, it's uh, record page 54. And it's interesting, uh, and I didn't mention this in my brief, I caught this later. Uh, at the bottom of the pro uh, promissory note on record page 54, it says it's an unsecured personal loan by Nyalkaron and Gordon By to BS and HS, one of the plants. Well, that, all that does is reemphasize what they, everyone knew the deal to be, because if Nyalkaron is an independent bargaining uh, party, then they would do everything, the same thing that everybody else does, which is um, they offer a note in exchange for a deed of trust on the property that they're allegedly purchasing. Here they didn't do that. They did the exact opposite of that. It's an unsecured personal loan to one of the plaintiffs. That also uh, shows that, the, that uh, BS and HS, the plaintiff, agreed to take, to make this note on an unsecured and personal basis um, because they did not view Nyakaran as a contracting party either. Uh, finally, um, Any other questions with my 10, 10 seconds left? All right. We respectfully request that the court uh, reverse uh, on the issues appealed as outlined in our uh, request for relief in our briefs. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. That, that concludes oral argument in this matter. We'll take this under advisement. I want to thank um, both of you, counsel, for your excellent arguments this afternoon. Mr. Soar, we may adjourn. All rise. This session of the North Carolina Court of Appeals is adjourned. I've seen anyone do it. Well done.